Blog Talk Radio. I'm a truth terrorist. I'm a knowledge gangster. I'm a black history hitman. I'm a lie killer, urban gorilla. I gotta be a roughneck. Free the black Panthers. FCBP. Stand for free the black Panthers. It's not the black police. That 13th Amendment. Trying to make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the black police. Feds infiltrated our movement for black leadership roles, but we still here, in the bill here, up coin tail pro. Show, they got me started, lying hearted, I'm the new Mufasa. And I'm all about Umoja, first in Guzu Saba. Let's bring back the black families, we need our father. Single mama, son and daughter, that's root of the problem. Wise up, we wise up. Unity is so powerful. Black banks, black schools, black gone, black power moves. You tell a lie, you think this shit won't be televised. Black power, be scared guys, that be standing there like they paralyzed. Huh? We say fuck the system, cause we above the system. We keep ARs and pistols, shotguns that's worth the crystal. But that's for self-defense, make sure we have no issues. Be sure to leave it at the door if you have it with you. This for them freedom fighters that lost their freedom. Until they freedom, we screaming carpe diem. This for the general. King Khalid Muhammad, we gon' make your day a holiday, I fuck me promise. Free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the Black Police, that 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me, you can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free, okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the Black Police, Feds infiltrated our movement for black leadership roles, but we still here in the bill here. Up coin tail pro. RBG, 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 RBG. My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, kid, that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black women and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny, foolish that don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. But rock fucked up another conversation. Trump finna get inaugurated, damn. Unify or die, nbpp.org. First and foremost, the new Black Panther Party, no no other Black Panther Party, we are not violent. We are for self-defense and self-determination. The most violent group in this country are the police. What is taking place by the police department to black people across this country is ethnic cleansing and genocide. It has escalated since the day that Barack Obama was inaugurated in 2008. We have a, 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 a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prisons. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prisons. The 13th Amendment said you could not be made a slave or indigenous servant unless you commit a crime. The 14th Amendment forced our people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation.
our next installment of the Conversations on Europe monthly series um, hosted by the uh, European Studies Center at the University of Pittsburgh. My name is Alison Delnor and I'm the interim director um, currently. Welcome to our panelists who I will introduce in just a minute. Um, our Conversations on Europe is a monthly series funded in part by the Erasmus Plus program of the European Commission and through a National Resource Center's grant from the U.S. Department of Education. Opinions expressed during this do not necessarily reflect our funders. This semester, as part of our Year of Recovering Europe, we are exploring the idea of reckoning with the past. And today's session is the last of the four-part session to engage with this broader topic. Thanks to support from our partners at universities throughout the U.S. through our Jamonet in the USA network, um, I can make a special thanks especially to our partners, Miami, Florida, Jamonet European Union Center of Excellence at Florida International University, the EU Center at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, the Center for European Studies at the University of Florida, and the Center for European Studies at the University of Texas, Austin, as well as the Center for European and Transatlantic Studies at the Georgia Institute of Technology. I also want to thank my institutional partners, the Center for Latin American Studies and the Global Studies Center here at the University of Pittsburgh. I also would be remiss if I didn't thank my colleagues, Iris Matijevich and Kenny Riley, for their help during today's session. Before we begin, and um, I would like to take a moment to do a land acknowledgement, which normally I would just do in passing, but um, given the discussion, I also want to sort of put it out there as something that we might talk about as things that are being done in, in light of the, the movements for global um, reparative justice, restorative justice. So we would first like to acknowledge that we gather and conduct uh, this video conference on the traditional ancestral lands of the Dina and Hopewell cultures, who were later joined by refugees of other tribes, including the Delaware, Shawnee, and Haudenosaunee. We recognize and honor them as the past, present, and future caretakers of this land. The land came under the control of the current settler state known as the U.S. through genocidal military campaigns and ongoing occupation. Acknowledging and understanding the history of the land we are on allows us to have historical context of an ongoing process of colonialism we see today. While we cannot change the past, we commit to continued gratitude for the gifts of nature, along with ongoing respect, care, and stewardship of the land, each other, and future generations. And I'm doing the formal pit version of the land acknowledgement, but of course, we're doing this remotely <laughs> and with other sites in the U.S. joining, so I could be adding a longer list of, um, of um, ancestral lands to that list. So today's session, after doing a session on decolonizing the curriculum, on decolonizing Europe's museums, today we wanted to talk in particular about the issue of reparations as another form of kind of reckoning with the past in Europe. And it's not just Europe that implicates, but just to give you some idea um, and to set the stage a little, within the past year, this has become increasingly um, visible as an issue impacting Europe. Um, in May of 2021, Germany agreed after many years of negotiations to pay 1.1 billion euros in reparations to Namibia. In June of 2021, the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, released a report on racial justice around the world that included um, support for reparations, bringing the issue you know, front and center. The next month, Jamaican officials announced a formal effort to claim reparations from Great Britain for damages done during um, two centuries of slavery on the island. 
And in September of 2021, French President Emmanuel Macron announced that he would support a new law for the recognition and reparation um, for Algerian Muslims, <clears throat> known as Harki, who fought for the French during the Algerian War of Independence, but who faced discrimination both in France and Algeria after the war. Uh, this law, in fact, the, the projet de loi was largely approved just last month on February 15th by the French Senate. This is just a brief sampling. There's a lot of other things going on. And it's certainly not limited to Europe and the European colonies. Um, since 2020, protests have made reparations a campaign issue, uh, issue but it's lar it predates that by a lot as well, as we will see. Um, cities and states around the U.S. are slowly responding, and in fact, Congressman Sheila Jackson Lee of Texas has announced that she believes that the House has enough votes to pass H.R. 40, which would establish a commission to study the issue of reparations for African Americans in the United States. So it's a good time for this conversation. <laughs> um, it's the high time, maybe, for this conversation on Europe, because we have not had this conversation yet in our series. So I am very, very pleased today to be able to welcome our panel of distinguished um, scholars and activists um, and public intellectuals to discuss the issue of reparations in Europe. And I imagine we're going to talk a little bit about the U.S. and other places as well. Um, so first, um, and in no particular order, <laughs> um, Dr. Claire Greenstein is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science and Public Administration at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Her research is on reparations for human rights, abuses, and transnational justice more generally. Her dissertation, Pressures, Promises, and Payments, Explaining Government's Reparations Decisions After Domestic Human Rights Abuses, is currently being reworked into a book manuscript. Um, next on my screen, Dr. Vereen Shepherd is the director of the Center for Reparation Research at the University of the West Indies. She researches Jamaican economic history, slavery, reparation, and gender discourses in Caribbean history, and is the author of seven books. Professor Shepard is also the host of Talking History, Heard Nationwide in Jamaica, a member of the National Council on Reparations in Jamaica, and a vice chair of the CARICOM Reparation Commission, and vice chair of the UN Committee um, for Elimination of Racial Discrimination. Um, Joshua Kwesi Akins is a political scientist a prominent activist and public scholar in Germany and Ghana, and a PhD student at the University of Kassel Department of Development and Postcolonial Studies. He has served as an expert member of the Parliamentary Commission of Inquiry on Racism and Discrimination in the State of Thuringia in Germany, and his research interests include the interaction between Western-style and indigenous political institutions um, in Ghana, post- and decolonial perspectives on development, and coloniality in the politics of memory in Germany. Um, and last but not least, Dr. Wes Alfenot uh, is an assistant professor of history, urban studies, and American studies at Fordham University in New York. His research focuses on political and intellectual thought in the 19th century, the African-American protest tradition, and the Haitian Revolution's legacy and influence on Black American radicalism. He's written on the case for Haitian reparations in Jacobin and The Root, among other interesting writings elsewhere. We'll have more thorough um, biographies linked on our website, um, as well, and, and as well as to the recorded um, version of this talk, which will also be loaded to our website, as, along with suggestions for further readings 
um, and um, viewing. I will say before we launch into questions that um, I do hope that um, we can get uh, lots of questions from our audience. Um, I see we have a number of people joining us today. So please feel free to put those questions in the Q&A and um, I will definitely raise them with our panel. So thank you all for joining us. <laughs> I'm very delighted to have this chance to have this conversation today. Now I wanna start with a little bit of a sort of broad question to get to set the, the stage. I gave a very brief outline of some recent things that have happening, but uh, that have been happening. But as I mentioned, this is, this is not new. So um, I'll, I'll throw it out um, first to you, Claire. Um, what is the kind of history of reparations in Europe, um, and where did how do we contextualize what we see happening in the past year or so? Sure. Um, so I also want to start by saying thank you for the invitation to be here, and I am just so honored to be able to be in a conversation um, with these scholars. It's really, um, yeah, just an amazing opportunity. So thank you for that. Um, as far as reparations history in Europe, um, reparations demands aren't new, but the terminology is, and certainly the extent to which you see that in ordinary public discourse is. So when I started working on rape, reparations in um, 2014-ish, um, people, when I said reparations, you know, I'm studying reparations, they would say, oh, like World War One." And I would have to explain, no, I'm looking at domestic reparations from the state to their citizens for human rights abuses. And now when I say I study reparations, people say, oh, like for slavery. Yes, exactly. Um, so the fact that just in, you know, a very short period of time, seven, eight years, uh, there has been, I would say, a seismic shift in the accessibility of the topic. Um, and awareness around the topic. Um, before Ta-Nehisi Coates published in the Atlantic his piece, you know, the case for reparations, people in the America in, in the U.S. were really not aware of the topic. And that piece, I think, is like a that is what did it, at least for the ordinary public in the U.S. Um, that now this is no longer seen as some sort of radical idea. Um, this is an accepted part of um, American public discourse. I don't think it is quite to that point in Europe, um, but I do think that it is getting there. Um, and certainly the Black Lives Matter protests that we saw um, across the world in 2020 um, really kick-started more of an awareness of that in Europe as well. Um, as far as Reparations, this is, it's quite common in Europe for countries to pay reparations. Um, most European countries have paid reparations, and certainly Germany is the most famous example of that with reparations for the Holocaust, um, and that was a groundbreaking um, event where you had a state acknowledging that it had done something wrong to its own citizens and paying reparations to the people that it had victimized. Um, this wasn't the result of a court case. This wasn't um, the result of, you know, an outside force saying you have to do this. This was an internal movement. The government itself decided to do it. And that was something new. 
Um, but since then, we've seen it spread. And so there have been reparations, not just by Germany for the Holocaust, but also um, most European countries have either uh, restituted property or paid reparations or um, for communism as well. Uh, you saw in the early 90s, um, many reparations for political prisoners or people who had their property expropriated. Um, so in Europe, reparations are not unusual. Um, the extent to which they are in the public consciousness is, and the extent to which people consider them for colonialism, that is something that I think is quite new um, and exciting and promising. Thank you very much. That helps a lot. Zarin, um, did you want to make some comments about that to maybe put it into comparative context a little? Thank you, and thank you for having me. Greetings to everyone. Yes, just quickly, I wanted to say that I agree with Claire that perhaps the word reparation may not have been in the public space as it is today, but I wanted to say that the genealogy, as far as the cabin is concerned, goes way back to the 15th century. If you think about reparation, activities, not only by colonizers, but activities which are driving the question and the, and the demand, then we have to look at conquest from the 15th century in the Caribbean and the actions of indigenous peoples who are saying, no, you can't just come here and do this. So I want to interject that walls of resistance, acts of resistance to colonialism, to conquest, colonization, enslavement, especially chattel enslavement, I, I want to say that those are earlier a movement for justice and uh, for the different types of reparation that we, we, we may name now, but that was always there. I want to talk about, I want to, to remind us of the, the, the resistance wars of, of enslaved people who were subjected to chattel enslavement in the Caribbean. I want to talk about the actions of Rastafari in the post uh, emancipation period, because really, up to the 1930s or 50s, Asafari carried the flame until now so many others have joined. So I just wanted to, to contextualize and kind of look at the genealogy and how far back it goes, especially for the Caribbean. And I think it goes for other parts of the, of, um, the world where, you know, Africa when people were resisting capture and sale of their people. This goes way back to saying, no, we don't want you in our land. We want you out. Or we want justice from you for the horrible wrongs that you have done. So I just wanted to say that. Yeah, I think that's a really important reminder to link this not just into a history of reparations as such, but a larger history of um, acts and tools of resistance, means of resistance. Um, so um, I guess thinking about, I'm going to skip a little bit, um, but thinking about the broader context um, in Europe, then if, if it's linked so much to all of these things, and you mentioned the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020 as kind of maybe increasing the activity a little bit more, um, do we think that governments are becoming more receptive to some of these demands with regards to acts uh, to reparations for specifically like slavery and colonial um, atrocities? 
And I guess I'll start with um, Dr. Shepard again on that one, Green. Do you, do you have a sense of whether it's accelerating now um, and governments are becoming a little more receptive to the idea? I, I know that the knowledge about the movement has increased. I think all governments know about the campaign for repatriate justice. But if activity means success of campaigns and financial responses from government, as far as the CARICOM region is concerned, and that is my concern today, then I would say no. Um, so yes, increased activity in terms of um, you know, balling on for justice, if you want to put it that way, and making claims. But the response of European governments to the Caribbean demand, I don't think that there has been any positive shift. In fact, CARICOM in 2014, 2015, um, formed this commission. 2016 sent six European governments letters of demand uh, for reparation. No positive response came back. Uh, the language was framed not in the language of reparation, but in the language of, you know, cultural exchanges and, you know, how much we have done in terms of grants and loans and that sort of thing. The occasional opposition MP in Europe might make statements. For example, in the UK, we know that um, David Lamy and the past Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn made um, statements supporting the movement. But sitting governments have not really acted. And there have been statements of regret, even bordering on apologies by heads and members of the Bishwal family, for example. Prince Charles went to Ghana, recently was in Barbados. But, and former Prime Minister, of course, Cameron and Blair made statements of regret. But they think we should forget about it and, and, and move on, as friends, in fact, once said. Friends, really. So, so, and, you know, there have been individuals who have made statements of regret, um, you know, and they are engaged in what we call community uh, reparation in specific places in the, in the Caribbean, like, you know, Wales as a movement because of the Penn and family and Penryn Castle and all of that. But we can't deny that the globalization of the Black Lives Matter campaign and the image of George Floyd that was on every network inside and outside of the USA caused a new reaction and more social media discussion about anti-black racism and the need for reparation. And several universities, you know, have come forward, some have returned looted um, heritage and so on. But I don't see the big shift in terms of states' responses that are necessary to move this along. Interesting. Can I ask Plessy to weigh in on this a little bit as somebody who's kind of on the ground in Germany? What's your, your sense of sort of state response? Um, yeah, I think um, I'd like to yeah, amend um, what Claire has pointed out rightly in the beginning about the centrality of, um, you know, the German um, activities when it comes to um, reckoning with and also um, you know, um, giving limited reparations for um, atrocities committed during the Holocaust. Uh, because I think it's important to recognize, because Claire, you said that um, this was, you know, out of uh, the free volition of the state. Uh, and I'd like to just, you know, widen the lens a bit, because of course that's true for um, some of the groups who have been persecuted and victimized, right? 
um, but not for others, right? Um, and so um, while there has been reparations paid to uh, people who were persecuted as Jews, um, there has been a long history, including legal fights, including legal fights in the U.S., um, for example, in New York courts, where the Alien Tort Claim was used um, for, uh, to ensure that um, forced, uh, victims of forced labor orchestrated by national socialists across occupied Europe uh, then also were compensated, right? I also want to uh, mention um, the history of Cynthia and Roma and their struggle for, for recognition of the Parimos, which is you know, um, the mass atrocities and Holocaust committed against Cynthia and Roma. And I also want to, I would be remiss if I wouldn't mention the fact that um, people of African descent who fell victim to the Holocaust um, and their descendants and those who um, have survived have not received official recognition nor have they received reparations to this very day, right? Um, so there is an ongoing um, struggle in terms of, you know, widening uh, the ambit of groups who um, clearly have been persecuted uh, by national socialists, but who are not included um, in uh, you know, those who are receiving uh, official uh, recognition um, and reparations. Now, that said, of course, it's also true, and this is, I think, what you have pointed to, um, that the recognition of the Holocaust and reparations are, of course, always the framework, right, in which all these other debates, in Germany, for sure, um, take place, right? So uh, this is one of the key um, frames that is being called upon uh, when uh, there are debates about widening uh, the gap. And I think in that context, it's important um, to recognize the role um, that this act of uh, recognition and reparation plays in also structuring the discourse uh, around um, other aspects of reparations, right? Um, though, and I think we'll get to this uh, in a bit, uh, it's also interesting to note that given this, uh, well, standard that has been established, now what we see are, you know, discursive struggles around, you know, uh, debates, for example, were other mass atrocities, um, you know, comparable, you know, were they actually genocide? And so now what we're observing is that now that there's a whole register, at least in Germany, in terms of state commemoration, now there are struggles to extend um, that register of recognition and reparations um, to other cases, such as, for example, uh, the um, genocide that happened in colonial Namibia. Alison, if I can jump in real quick. Um, yes, I just want to, to echo everything that you said. Um, I, I think it is incredibly important to note that the Nazis persecuted so many different groups and each of those groups, there were commonalities across them, um, but the way, the reasons for which they were targeted and the ways in which they were persecuted. So we know, for example, that um, Sinti and Roma were much more likely to be forcibly sterilized, um, which was devastating culturally. Um, so the, the people who did survive, um, that was something that they had to carry with them for the rest of their lives, this inability to have children. Um, and Jews were less likely to be affected by that type of persecution specifically. So we know that there are different types of crimes committed against different types of people. Um, sterilization was not recognized as a national socialist crime until I think like the 1970s, 1980s. Of course, you might, you might know better than I. 
the specific dates on that, but absolutely. Um, even though what Germany did initially, West Germany, I should say East Germany is a different story, um, but what West Germany did is groundbreaking. Um, that's not to say that it was sufficient or that it was um, well-designed um, or that it even had the reparative effect that people think it did. So you, on paper, Roman, since you were eligible for reparations, did they actually get them? No, not until the 1980s. Um, almost all claims from Cinti and Roma, even though in the letter of the law they were guaranteed reparations, um, they were told that they were persecuted not because of their uh, race, or ethnicity, but because they were inherently criminal and therefore the state had engaged in legitimate um, security measures to reduce criminality. Um, and so therefore it was their own fault that they had been subjected to genocide. Um, the German government did not acknowledge that it was a genocide until I think 1982. Um, so what we have on paper, the promises that governments make um, and I think Vereen pointed this out um, very well with, with what the, the UK government's response has been um, to CARICOM is what you say does not align with what you do and what you promise to do does not necessarily align with what ends up happening. So even though what Germany, what West Germany did was groundbreaking and was progress, it re-traumatized millions of people um, and it was insufficient and it was exclusionary. And it is only over time, over many decades that we have seen eligibility expand. And then one part that's good, right, that we do, we now are, as of I think 1988, um, people who were persecuted for their sexuality became eligible for reparations. In 1997, Jehovah's Witnesses were made eligible for reparations. But at that point, how many survivors do you have? Um, and so there's this give and take, right? With yes, Germany is doing a really good job compared to everywhere else in the world, but the cynical take, and I think there is some legitimacy to this, is they are expanding as the survivors who they would have to pay are becoming less numerous. And so it is much easier now to say, ah, yes, we are going to provide pensions to forced laborers. Um, German pension laws have to say that you must have received compensation for your labor in order to be eligible for that time to count towards your pension. And so there was a big fight about, well, does paying people, they didn't get money, but they got meals in the ghettos and the concentration camps. Does that count as payment? And so eventually it was decided in the courts, yes, this counts as payment, therefore we can pay pensions to forced laborers for their time that they worked as forced laborers. But that took until 2001. Um, at which point, how many of these people are left? And the, the number of people that you are going to compensate dwindles as the eligibility expands. And I, I would expect that pattern to repeat elsewhere as well. So this brings up a, a number of points that I want to address, but I also want to make sure that um, we get less involved in the conversation. Um, and so I'm going to kind of reframe the question that I, that I told you that I was going to throw to you um, a little bit, because I think this brings up issues of both kind of the expansion of categories, but also the issues of time scale. Because we're talking about, you know, you've mentioned, you know, the number of survivors who can be compensated, but in a lot of reparations claims, we're talking about descendants of victims, right? 
So I think thinking through what these issues of time scale are will be important, and we can we can come back to that. Um, and then I want to get back to this issue of what what kind of reparative effects that we 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 intend and what actually happens. But I guess um, to to start to make our way to those questions, um, and and Wes, can can we maybe start to be a little bit more precise about what we mean by reparations? Because I feel like. Maybe I was a little too broad and just assuming, you know, at the beginning that we're just talking about strict financial payments, or maybe we are just talking about like a set financial like subsidy. Um, but it seems like there's maybe a host of things that can be involved in this um, idea of reparations or restitution as part of, you know, moving forward and, and restorative and, and reconciliation. Um, so. Wes, could you could you maybe help us kind of narrow in on what we mean by reparations? Yes, yes. Um, thank you for, and that's a phenomenal, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, and I also want to say just thank you for um, the invitation to have me here next to some um, just uh, amazing minds thinking about this issue. Um, and thank you to your institute for really just bringing up about what I think is just an incredible um, forum that needs to be continued. Um, so with regards to the definition around um, reparations. I think the way I think about it, first I have to acknowledge that I think about it within the context of the um, the transatlantic, right, um, in terms of the relation of the so-called um, North Atlantic powers uh, and relative to um, <clears throat> the African people as well, um, both internally to the African continent especially sub-Saharan Africa and others, uh, as well as um, the broader African diaspora. And and to go back to Professor Shepard's point earlier, um, with, I'm also thinking about uh, the Americas writ large. Uh, and within that, um, I start really with the modern history of uh, the so-called New World in terms of the Western Hemisphere. So that means I, I start with um, the indigenous Americans and what they have within this, uh, what claims they have within this debate. So the way I think about reparations is it has to have three elements within uh, reparations. Uh, so there is the reparative part um, for what was broken, um, and restorative is, for me, what was taken, and restitutive Although these words more or less might mean the same thing, I think there's a different emphasis here. And last, so restitutive for me is a return uh, of rights, um, especially essential human rights, as well as recompensation for um, <clears throat> for the previous two, right? So the, I think about it in those three elements. Um, so for me, reparations mean re uh, reparative, restitutive, and restorative. Um, and Part of the reason why I place it within that framework is to actually think about the very fact that the reason why we've changed our own vernacular around how we talk about um, chattel slavery is to not, when we say enslavement, is to acknowledge that um, the people, the African peoples that were taken, were taken from a state of freedom uh, and, and then enslaved into a state in which um, all sense of human rights and property uh, were taken from them. And, and in terms of indigenous people, we're not just talking about 
uh, forms of enslavement and conquest that, that happened, but really in the broader collective sense of uh, their historical experience, this is an issue of sovereignty, the sovereignty that was taken from them. And uh, from my perspective, I could care less whether that sovereignty is defined in today's term or um, in the terms of 500 years ago, regardless sovereignty we know was taken, um, both in the context of the conquest and what followed it with the settler uh, dynamics that uh, was brought into that. So this is how I'm thinking about reparations. Uh, and in, in all these three forms, the problem that we currently have now is even as we're speaking, and I think Kwesi um, actually pointed to this a, a bit, the framework in which we're speaking about reparations is completely diluted by the vo very vocabulary set, vocabulary definition set by the very people who are the perpetrators within all these forms of violence. Um, so for instance, uh, with regards to um, the, the conversation around reparations and how it takes place in Europe relative to say the great example of Germany, which I do um, look at a, as a great example of Germany relative to the crimes committed against the Jewish people, where um, that then becomes the framework and the model wherein we talk about crimes that were committed for centuries even before, crimes that are in effect um, the very experimental grounds that then came back to roost in the metropole, right? But we would have been we have been talking about those crimes within Germany and, and the European continent as if they are exceptional to the broader global experience that Europe had visited on people on the outside, when in fact the bodies, black and brown bodies, were the very bodies whereby those things were workshopped and then brought in. So for me, a major issue with the conversation of reparations is that if you really size it up for what it is, um, not only does Europe get to commit the crime, it also designates the way in which the crime is talked about and how we set the parameters and frameworks for how one goes about getting some form of uh, reparative justice for those crimes. And um, what I appreciate about this forum is, in part, we're getting together to try to change that conversation, right? Um, and what I appreciate, this is um, in part going a, a, a little outside of our conversation here, but I think if you look at the way we're dealing with the language around what's happening in Ukraine, it gives you a very nice illustration of what I'm talking about here. Who gets to define the refugee? Who gets to define pain that is the pain that we get to sympathize with? The pain that is actually called criminal, whereas the pain that is expected to be inflicted on other people. And it hurts my heart to see what's happening in Ukraine. But I cannot bring myself to take the rhetoric very seriously when the so-called rules-based order that Russia is violating is one in which Russia has already visited it on other people outside of Europe. And many of these North Atlantic powers had for centuries visited on the other people on the outside and continue to do so. And yet, somehow, Ukraine represents a form of exceptionalism to violence that um, others are not privy to. So for me, 
the whole conversation is already corrupted based on who gets to define it. And I want us to move to a position in which not only are we talking about reparations, but we're talking about it from the very perspective and definitions as is set by the people who uh, experience those criminal acts, right? So this is one way that I like to sort of think about the conversation um, around reparations. And of course, I could say more um, later. Yeah, and, and we'll, we'll welcome that. But we had a bunch of activity. I know that people wanted to weigh in. Doreen, did you still want to say something? And, and I also see Plessy has stand up. Well, just briefly, and I, I think maybe Kwesi will take this up, um, you know, in his comments, but we we always, well, not we, many people start with the Holocaust, the Jewish Holocaust, forgetting the African Holocaust. But not only that, they start with, or they put as precedent only the payment of reparation to Jews. What about what France extracted from Haiti. You know, we tend to forget that it's, it's, not, it's not only that the Caribbean is demanding that reparation be paid. We're demanding that Haiti gets back what France extracted. France extracted reparation from Haiti. So when people talk about the roots of poverty and position certain countries as if they're always, you know, on, on the lookout for, for quote-unquote aid. I think we have to remember where this all started and in the past, way before the world wars, those North Atlantic wars, anyway, uh, extracted reparation. I just wanted to jump in with that before the point flipped. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I have you a little pen in you. Let's <laughs> see, we want to get to that. But Wes has written on this and has, thought of, and has written a lot about the case for reparations for Haiti. And I wonder if you could just jump in really quickly and explain what Vereen is referring to with the, mm-hmm. what happened post-Haitian independence with the French demands for reparation. Yes, I think, you know, what's very unique about Haiti, and Haiti is actually uh, an exceptional uh, case here because um, not only is it the first post-colonial state within the transatlantic world, um, it's also the first example of everything that Fanon talked about, as well as the first example of um, the, you know, the decolonized state that then is brought in um, to be recolonized and in many cases re-enslaved. And we know the powers that be that cause that, whether that be France, the UK, Germany is involved, the United States. Um, and the current case that Professor Shepard is actually talking about with regards for reparations for Haiti doesn't even consider the, the uh, pre, uh, pre-independence period. What Haiti is actually demanding <laughs> is reparations for a payment that can be documented, traced, whose parties are still in business as multinational companies along with the various government entities that were all involved in it. So you cannot have a better case for reparations than anyone, right? In addition to the very brutal act of enslavement and colonialism um, that were visited on people of African descent. And before that, by the way, um, the state of Haiti, the name Haiti, 
is actually an indigenous word, which the Africans, by way of paying some form of restitutive symbolic justice, renamed it back to what it was under the indigenous people, recognizing when Desalines, who was the, uh, you know, the second in command to Toussaint and eventually took over, was naming the, uh, the land, what they intended to actually signal too is this is bigger than just Africans. It's a global act of justice because what we've avenged is also um, the lives that were massacred genocidally under Europeans. And to bring back the case of, of indigenous folks, we're talking about 90%, 90% of North and South within 100 years. How in the world does the Holocaust become the central defining element of genocide when you've had that kind of history, to me, goes to show a broader problem with regards to how Europe would like us to think about reparations, which is the pain of white people is what matters, ultimately. The pain of white people is what matters. Um, and, and so with regards to Haiti, um, you have a situation whereby even in the state of, of some form of sovereignty, within the so-called rules-based order that the powers have, been, have created since the 19th century, mind you, Haiti actually accepted to work within that rules-based order. And even within that, they were not afforded the opportunity to actually experiment and see ultimately what a, a, a state ruled by former African slaves could look like. The fact of the matter is, because of these damages, and I'm sure um, this is part, part of Professor Shepard's uh, point, because of these damages that were an, an injury that was inflicted on Haiti, I'm not sure that the world realized we have not even begun to know what a true independent Haiti would look like. How could we know? It's been molested too many times. The United States being the closest proximity in terms of an independent post-colonial state has had the opportunity to live out its, its experiment. But an experiment in black power and black governance in the form of Haiti has actually not yet been, 200 years later, have had an opportunity to actually experiment. So it, it, it even goes beyond what was extracted, it also um, is a, a story of how even post-slavery or post-colonialism, the West, the so-called West, creates dynamics and infrastructures whereby black self-governance is completely rejected and refused. And it really sounds sad because every time you talk about this, it makes you sound as if you're engaging in conspiracy theories, when in fact the facts are all there for anyone, pro or against, to see. And every time I talk about this, I sound as if I'm crazy. But what else could it be when we see the thing in front of us and we get modern uh, sort of examples of the different actions that were taken. So it, just in the last two weeks, Ukraine, I'm sure, has received more in aid than any one of these single countries owe Haiti. And the Haitian state 
is much older than Germany as a state, which by the late 19th century was extracting from Haiti as part of that debt that France imposed in 1825. What else? Not only is it older than the state of Germany or the empire, the German empire, it's also much older than Israel, which had not ex yet existed as a Jewish state, but is now responsible for receiving the payments, the reparation payments that Germany is issuing to uh, some Jewish populations. And yet Haiti, which has existed as a state long before 1947, did not end up paying its full debt in terms of the indemnity that France imposed on it in 1947. Right, so there, there is, so it, it, the last point I want to make here, not only with regards to the Haitian case, but also this larger history about reparations, as far as I am concerned, not only do we have to take the conversation from the full perspective of the people who have been harmed, but actually the West, when it comes to defining any parameters of it, is morally bankrupt, ethically bankrupt and any sort of sense of the word with regards to legal, political, social, economic, how it looks about history in the last 500 years, the West is actually bankrupt. It has no stand in which to actually preach the very values that it claims to preach. Values, by the way, that were only made real in both ideas and in flesh by people of African descent through the Haitian Revolution. So um, this, this is all so great. Uh, but I know Clessy had his, um, his hand raised. I want to see if you still wanted to add something. Yes. Um, yeah, thanks, Wes, uh, you know, for this really um, important reminder and contextualization. Um, and I just wanted to um, add on that and um, you know, remind us to um, put us into a broader perspective of practices of um, Africans that had been um, deported and that had freed themselves and had created their own states um, in Haiti, but of course also in the interior of Brazil, um, in Suriname and other places. And we see practices of this um, recognizing and symbolic reparations towards indigenous presence and culture in all these places. We see them in the Brazilian Quilombos, we see them in Suriname, where there are practices of naming, practices even of cultural memory. Uh, for example, in Coded and Capoeira, um, where we have um, different African, but also indigenous practices that are carried forward in honor of the indigenous presence on whose land then the Africans found themselves, right? So there's a broader um, network tradition there that I just want to um, evoke, right? So just to underline Wes's key point. Um, but what I wanted to um, say earlier, when we, when Wes also, you know, um, linked this to the Ukraine debate, I just wanted to, um, if you allow me, um, give you yeah, a few insights into what is happening in Berlin and Germany right now on the ground, because I feel um, the way um, Germany responds to the Ukrainian situation um, is, is very telling when it comes to, you know, taking in um, refugees, which of course, um, also as a German citizen, I say is necessary and should absolutely happen. Um, but um, I also have to say that there is a marked contrast, right, um, to um, other movements of people, right? Uh, for example, Africans moving across the Mediterranean, right? 
um, but also um, Syrians coming in here in, nine, uh, in 2015, right? Where uh, the legal response, state response was markedly different, right? And now what crystallizes this in this present moment is of course the treatment of Africans and African descendant refugees that try to leave Ukraine, uh, where now um, the black community in Berlin is organizing to receive and they're coming in you know, by the hundreds per day and it is very, very clear. They tell us, literally every day, they tell us that at every single border they're, cro they're crossing, their treatment is markedly different. And that's, you know, there's no other way of putting it. This is clearly and blatantly racist, right? Now, um, Germany and Europe is vaccinating about, you know, the status of um, Ukrainians, which have much better status, which is good for them. And I'm happy for that. When they want to come here and settle, they're easily um, getting education, healthcare and the like. But then again, there we have differential treatment, you know, for um, African descendants um, fleeing the same conflict, right? So this is just to underline um, um, this issue. And I want to um, uh, bring this home by um, telling you about the fact that um, at the last week in February, we always have a march here in Berlin where we um, demand a memorial in Berlin for um, the victims and heroes of enslavement and colonialism, right? Because Berlin is a the center of, you know, commemorative practices across Germany and Europe. And there's a huge lacuna, right, when it comes to commemorating this history. I'm telling you this, though, because this year, um, the organizers have received calls from, you know, well-meaning um, white German intellectuals who called on us to not march this year, saying that, you know, in the context of the Ukraine crisis, it would be better not to have the march, uh, which is already quite telling. Well, of course, we did have the march, but I'm telling you this because we actually did cross um, the Russian embassy, in front of the Russian embassy, um, there was a huge um, crowd protesting, right? And there were many Ukrainians there. And as we, as our demonstration, you know, passed by, we, you know, sent signs of solidarity over and so did they. And then some of them came over to talk to us. And one elderly woman with a Ukrainian flag came to me and spoke to me personally, telling me, look, um, it's horrible what is happening in our country. And I'm happy that you are sending solidarity to us. But I also want to tell you that I know that we know that what we are facing here is something that you have been facing for a much longer time. So I just want to share with you that I also stand in solidarity with you. And then she walked with us for a bit, right? So um, this just tells you in a nutshell, right? Um, both about, you know, the hierarchies that, um, you know, all the others have been pointing out are so blatant in this current environment. But of course, it also tells you about the differential awareness and the possibilities for solidarity across um, uh, you know, these afflicted populations um, and the necessity also to look at this differential treatment and the diverging outcomes as bellwethers, right? For ongoing um, differences in the way, you know, even the meaning of you know, who's a refugee, what is a war, what is an atrocity, how these things are cast, which then really helps us to um, sharpen a debate such as this one as we're having right now. Yeah, that's an, that's an amazing anecdote, Wesley. Thank you for sharing that because, um, uh, yeah, I'm picturing it and it's, it's really, really amazing to think about these moments of, that people are able to come together kind of one-on-one -on -one and express solidarity and how we move past these differentials because this is a big part of the issue. And as Wes points out, I, I actually know more ironically about the Haitian case than I do about the American case, but in terms of, you know, both both achieving independence in similar time frames, right? I mean, at a similar point in history, and the recognition of American independence by other states happened 
pretty quickly after the, you know, after the U.S. declares independence, mm -hmm. becomes independent. Um, whereas, you know, a lot of that, even just formal recognition of statehood was withheld from Haiti for a very long time, including by the U.S., um, which makes it very hard to then, like, negotiate trade and all sorts of, you know, important things that you need to build a state and an economy. Um, so not even just the, the problem with, like, the financial reparations that had to be paid or that were demanded by the French. And I actually, what I, what I was meaning when I don't know the American case is I actually can't call to mind if there's a similar demand on the part of the British for the Americans to pay reparations after they, after they are formally severed and the British have acknowledged they've left. But I can't remember one. I don't, I mean, <laughs> like sort of running through it. Um, I would guess they probably whined about it and nothing happened. But if anybody knows and can add to this, so the discussion or any of our audience happens to know, that would be really interesting. Um, and just a side note, because it's, it's sort of tangential to this. But I, I want to come back to, and I, I want to ask, if we got a couple questions coming, and I encourage, please, audience, feel free to ask questions. We've got this amazing discussion going. And we have had a question, a couple of them, one of which speaks exactly to what Wes was bringing up earlier, was about who gets to define the terms. And it kind of goes back to our question about what do we mean by reparations. So I want to ask one of our um, graduate students here at Pitt has, has written in, um, should the afflicted communities um, be allowed to decide what reparations look like? Can it be both monetary and program-based? And how do you determine if someone qualifies for reparations? There's a lot of different questions there. But, you know, this idea of who gets to decide, should the, the, the victims or the afflicted communities be the ones to decide what reparations should look like? Yeah, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll take that question. Uh, well, this is, a, uh, this is a debate that's been um, ongoing in the United States, especially because um, we're dealing with a, a state that is multicultural, multinational, multiethnic. Um, so when you say, um, for instance, if we take the case of black Americans, which is uh, next to indigenous, the most prominent case we've had here, um, it, there's been an ongoing debate as to, well, what does that mean for um, uh, Jamaican Americans who've lived here for generations, or Haitian Americans, or you know, Afro-Caribbeans and other um, folks? I, um, while I understand that some of these intricacies may bring in some complexities, I want um, want to sort of alert that while they are practicable questions, I think they are in part, and this is not to um, our uh, our um, audience member who asked the question, but more generally, they're often weaponized and used to distract from the very fact that whenever you're talking about black people in the new world, you're talking about some form of forced dislocation from the continent. And yes, were there some free black people who came here voluntarily? Sure. But in a transnational framework with regards to the United States and, and the Caribbean, you're talking about um, a trade within a trade and even more domestically furthermore, right? So there's not a, a clean break from, say, uh, once a Jamaican comes here, whether their case is any less credible within the context of African-American um, reparations, that's somewhat of a moot point, given the fact that if you just go to New Orleans alone, um, you have a population whose extraction uh, is 
half um, of Haitian, you know, descent, right? So there's and, and it's also uh, um, dismissing the very fact that you have you've had a, a long trade um, beyond the commodities of, of black bodies back and forth between these different colonies, right? So um, if we want to talk about uh, the different sort of sections of who should be included and not included, we can definitely go into it. And, and there are scholars out there, um, one including a, a scholar at um, uh, UNC who's been doing some very good work about how to look at this um, from a very practical uh, practical solution. But I am also very much sort of sensitive to the ways in which um, both people within the African diaspora, as well as especially interests on the outside who'd like to sort of have this cemented and segmented in ways that um, really uh, um, undermines more than it helps. And um, and the other part of the question that I want to uh, uh, respond to is, yes, absolutely, it should be determined by the very people who understand the harm and the injury and what was lost and what was taken. I can't imagine that the perpetrators, the perpetrators knew what they were taking, but beyond that, what else do they know to quantify or qualify that harm? And and also, to go back to my point, um, let's, if we just use Haiti as the earliest sort of post-colonial um, example, you, the, the powers that be have not demonstrated that they can responsibly set the boundaries and contours of the definitions and the terms of what reparations is. Because as far as they're concerned, it's only harmful when it is visited on those like their own, when they've hurt other Europeans, or say people who are mildly lighter than dark-skinned peoples of the world. But it's never that the harm and the injustice that is visited on the dark-skinned peoples of the world is considered um, an aberration. It's more or less considered just um, a routine, a, a norm of what just happens throughout history. For instance, as far as, I, as I'm as i concerned, maybe my, my colleagues here who know more about Europe can enlighten me in this. For the life of me, I do not understand why Churchill remains some big uh, titan of human rights when more Indians died under Churchill's guidance willingly and knowingly and not by accident. More Indians from, I'm talking about um, the subcontinent here, Millions, millions of people, and yet we're talking about um, we're talking about how Putin is doing the same in terms of coordinating you know, Kiev and all such. So my thing is, we the, the hypocrisy is already in itself a ground of the illegitimacy of the West to define the set terms of the debate. Green, I see your hand, and and, and I, I, I'm passing it off to you, and also I hope that you may already be talking about this, but I think Terracom is a great example in sort of how the terms are being defined for reparation. So um, I'll pass it along to you, but if that's not yes. what you wanted to say, I think that would be great. <laughs> yes, thank you. In fact, I wanted to start there by saying it's, it's not should we, 
But I want to, to say we have been setting the agenda in terms of the demand. CARICOM is in fact only maybe the latest in terms of the, of the Caribbean, but you know, indigenous peoples and South Africans, they started to set. But since you mentioned the CARICOM, there's a 10 point action plan and it was so moving to me to be invited to Berlin some years ago where there was a three months focus in, uh, in different uh, media, using different media on the 10 point plan. You know, I even had to have a, a shirt with a 10 point plan and the need for repair. So it's not just making waves within the Caribbean. So we start with the need for a full formal apology. And this also addresses the different forms of reparation. It's not just financial or monetary, but that's of course um, important. So we start with a full formal apology. These are demands. The Indigenous Peoples Development Program, because we're talking about historic wrongs which have contemporary legacies, which need to be repaired as well. Repatriation, because if you're stolen from your homeland, you have a right to return. Um, and so number three, repatriation for those who desire it. We know, of course, that not everyone is going to uh, settle, resettle. The building of cultural institutions, attention to the public health crisis. Everybody has seen how COVID-19 has thrown up the inequalities and the racism, even in the um, availability of vaccines and so on. So we don't have, you know, that is clear. We also know that the centuries of a certain kind of diet have made our people susceptible to type 2 diabetes and to hypertension, all of the salted, salted food. So we don't have enough hospitals and clinics and centers to deal with the ill, the, the health crises of our population. So that's number five. We want attention to uh, the decolonizing the curriculum and to um, funds to improve the quality and the content of education and even the spaces for education. We want an African knowledge program. That's number seven because uh, our bridges of connection, um, too many uh, efforts have been made to disconnect us. And so we're talking about uh, African knowledge program. Psychological rehabilitation. We all know that we're still suffering from the psychological harm. There's an intergenerational transmission of trauma. That is clear. Um, and we're talking about technology transfer. That's number nine. And also debt cancellation and monetary compensation. So it's a, we claim the right to development. We, we talk about the extraction of wealth by Europeans. One example is that Britain earned 5 million pounds per year from sugar during the peak of the industry in the Caribbean. And over a century alone, Britain made 500 uh, million pounds equal to over 2.5 trillion uh, in today's money. Now, quickly, I want to also pick up on something that was said. The, the, I, I suspect you're talking about this um, um, ADOS um, discussion in the United States. And I want to say that Caribbean people are not just modern-day migrants to the United States. After many major wars of resistance in the Caribbean led by enslaved people, many were deported to the U.S. South to work on, sugar, on, on cotton and other plantations, Louisiana and, and Virginia and so on. So 
it's, it's the Caribbean people have as, as much right to be included in the reparation claim in the United States as anybody else there. Not only that, remember that the United States traded directly from Africa to the Caribbean. We have the 2.0, Slave Voyages 2.0, for, uh, the, moder- the, the updated one for 2018, and we can trace and count all the ships available from that database that shipped Africans using on, on ships with U.S. flags, flying the U.S. flags directly to the Caribbean. It's not that they were passing through the Caribbean to revitter and then continuing to the United States. They dropped off the people here. If the descendants of those people migrate to the United States today or whenever, um, they're entitled. And the other thing I want to say is that, um, going back to, to Haiti, is the way in which there was complicity in shutting down the reparation demand when Aristide, former President Aristide, made it on the, during the bicentennial of the Haitian Revolution, you know, and the complicity of, of so many others. And all, two, other, two final points. One, we, are, we have to come together with this demand as a global black community and a community of indigenous people because the divide and rule policy has been going on for a very long time. Just ask the maroon communities in their or various um, spaces and in First Nation peoples. We, we have to uh, interrupt this. Um, and we have to insist that those who don't want to give indigenous peoples the rights of indigenous people, like the maroons, we, we must remind them of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which speaks to sovereignty. Not in the way that people are defining sovereignty, but in, in the way in which the declaration speaks to, um, to informed and prior consent, and also the way in which it talks about, you know, the, the right to define government practices. And then to say finally that this business of claiming different forms of reparation is not a new thing. I am always attracted to what Randall Robinson wrote in his book, The Death, from Jordan. And I just read, read it quickly. Because enslaved people and formerly enslaved people themselves recognized what had to be done in terms of monetary compensation. So, sir, if you will write and say what wages you will give me, I will be better able to decide whether it would be to my advantage to move back again, as you have been asking me to do after slavery is abolished. And we have concluded to test your sincerity by asking you to send us our wages for the time we served you. I have served you faithfully for 32 years, and my wife, Mandy, 20 years. At $25 a month for me and $2 a week for Mandy, well, you know, I don't agree with this gender divide, but anyway. Our earnings would amount to $11,680. Add this, add to this, the interest for the time our wages have been kept back, and deduct what you paid for our clothing, and three doctor's visits to me, for me, and pulling a tooth for Mandy. And the balance will show what we are in justice entitled to. Please send the money by Adams Express. If that is not a model for reparation, I don't know what is. Thank you. Your mic is. Thank you. <laughs> and you know, I've only been doing this kind of thing for years. You'd think I'd gotten it by now, but um, you, I'm just engrossed in this. And you also point to some really interesting, um, some of the ways that work is being done to, to try to document and quantify and discuss 
what the extent and I mean, you know, this sort of argument comes down sometimes to how are we going to define it. Um, so I think it's nice that you were able to also point to some of those things. And I put a list in the, or a link in the chat to the 10-point preparation plan that you that you were referring to for others. Um, Claire, you had your hand up next. Um, okay, so just yes to everything Breen said. I am just thrilled to be able to hear from your expertise and, and your yeah your experience. Um, but absolutely, the people who are affected by this should be the ones determining what counts as reparations. And not only is that valid from a justice perspective, but from an efficacy perspective as well. So if we look at reparations programs around the world, what ones are most effective at accomplishing their goals? Um, and those goals might be cynical, right? You know, like we, we did some harm and now we've got people who are mad at the state and how do we address that? Um, or, you know, we've, we've disenfranchised, we've harmed citizens, and if we want a democratic society with rule of law, we need to address this egregious breach of the rule of law. Um, the best way to do that is to ask the people themselves, what is it you want? Um, the harm was done to them. They should get to set the terms. And I think everything that Wes said about the, the, even the language that we use, do you want to call this reparations? Um, this is a big debate and is still um, around, again, to bring it back to reparations for the Holocaust, the German word for this that was often used is Wiedergutmachung, and literally that is to make good again, which is impossible. You cannot make good again the loss upon loss upon loss that is compounded over decades. It is not possible. So yes, the people who are affected should get to set the language, they should get to set the demands, they should get to be the ones um, determining eligibility requirements. Um, historically, this has all been done by the perpetrators, and they set eligibility requirements oftentimes so high that they're impossible to meet. You know, you have to show this documentation. You have to go to this doctor who is approved by the state. You have to bring these files. You have to be the one um, giving interviews with our state-appointed, you know, interlocutors. Oftentimes, the people, the bureaucrats running those things are perpetrators. These are the doctors who sent people to concentration camps. Why would you submit yourself to a medical examination given by a perpetrator, the very person who was running experiments on you in a death camp? You're not, that completely defeats the purpose of reparations. If the goal is to repair or restore or um, a, you know, improve rule of law or to provide dignity to people, to show respect that we honor your humanity and we acknowledge this irreparable harm that we knowingly perpetrated upon you, you cannot do it in that way. Um, and you also can't guess what people need, right? So one thing that Peru did that worked 
I mean, it's it's a brilliant idea. The implementation we can discuss is somewhat flawed, but when it worked, it worked really well where they would go and ask communities because the harm was inflicted upon communities, not just individual people. And I think that's also a really important point that um, all of the other panelists have brought up, right, it's, it's with Haiti. That was not done to individual people alone. It was done to the country. And so the repair must be done for individuals, but also for the country. And so in Peru, where there was community violence and communities were burned down and destroyed, they went and asked the community, what is it that you want? Um, and so they got to decide, we want a paved road to our community so that it's easier for us to bring our goods to market. We want a hospital built here so that we can take care of each other. We want a school so that our children can learn Spanish and have better job opportunities. We want a fish farm so that we can provide food for ourselves and sell the extra to make a profit. Um, so when you consult people, you know, I would never think of starting a fish farm somewhere. You ask people what is it they want, um, and you can do that without strings attached. That is really meaningful, too. So we see that in Brandenburg, the, the state of Brandenburg in um, Germany. It's you know just outside Berlin. They asked um, political prisoners from the East German dictatorship. Um, they said, all right, we have been trying these different reparations methods, you know, scholarships. Um, or uh, we're going to clear your record, or we're going to give you some money. All of that came with strings attached. Or, you know, these people are too old at this point. They don't want to go back to school. Um, or, you know, maybe they don't need the health care, but they would really like to have a new wardrobe. So the, the state decided, we're just going to give you 10,000 euros, and you don't have to show us the receipts, and you don't have to approve it, get it approved by us, whatever you're spending it on. And people went and bought a new couch because they like to sit in their apartment and watch TV and they want a new couch. Or they're going on job interviews and they want a new wardrobe so that they can be more successful in the interviews. So things that you wouldn't, unless you're experiencing it, you wouldn't necessarily come up with those things. But if the state shows, hey, we're apologetic and also we trust you, you know, we didn't trust you, so we brutalized you, and now we do trust you enough to give you these 10,000 euros, no strings attached. That is meaningful in restoring, to a certain extent, some of the broken trust between citizen and state. Um, so I think even just from, even completely disregarding the morality of it, which absolutely, yes, it should be the people who were affected, who get to set the terms, from an efficacy standpoint, if you actually want reparations to work, you have to get the people who are affected involved. Otherwise, no one is going to be satisfied and you're only going to make things worse. Thank you for that. Um, Kwesi, you said your hand up for a long time and I want to get to you and I'm sure you want to address a bunch of things that have been said here. But I also afterwards, if you don't address this, I want to bring up the case of Namibia and the Oviharo claims. So um, just to prepare you. But please. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's really a fantastic conversation because I feel like we are um, weaving this together and putting so many important puzzle pieces together to get a different um, picture on what we are discussing. Uh, I just wanted to offer a few um, puzzle pieces and then, yes, also um, uh, address the Namibian uh, case. Uh, one puzzle piece I wanted to offer is Alison. You um, earlier asked about, you know. Um, 
uh, were there any requests from England uh, to the US? I don't know about that historically, but I wanted to remind us, speaking from Europe, about the fact that England, of course, did um, pay you know, reparative payments to the so-called former owners of enslaved people, right? Uh, when they abolished enslavement. And I think that is also important um, as a, an historical case, you know, where it was obviously, uh, again, you know, linking to what Wes has uh, said earlier and was uh, Marine also addressed, right? The uh, blatant anti-blackness and the denial of black humanity is so um, obvious in this kind of move where then you um, pay the former, you know, so-called owners, but not the people who had been um, enslaved. And the reason why it was important is not only because it shows this kind of um, double standard and complete moral bankruptcy that we've been discussing, but also because if you go into the record, you see how widespread this ownership was, right? So David Olusoga has done some important work on this, where he was then able to show this was not just, you know, the landed gentry, this was your mom and pop, you know, store around the corner who was also invested, right, um, in enslavement. And that shows how deep, um, you know, um, these profits um, spread across society, right, even at that time, right? Uh, which then again um, gives us an inverse model, right, in terms of thinking about um, how resources should be relocated today, right, and who should be the one speaking to um, how this should work, right, given the fact that it shows how the fabric of European society, European wealth and, you know, economic development hinged um, on the distribution um, of this um, stolen wealth that was accrued through torture, enslavement and mass murder. Um, and given that, I think I wanted to also add to the debate on what should constitute reparations. Of course, I agree with everything that has been said. Um, the people harmed and their descendants are the ones who have to set the terms. But I just wanted to um, shine light on what I think is also a key practice in this context, which is the idea of symbolic reparations, which, again, should not be uh, kind of brought into any kind of competition with what we've been discussing here in terms of material reparations, right? Uh, but which I believe also to be important because they have a key restorative aspect to them. When I say symbolic reparations, I mean um, public commemoration. We did speak briefly about memorials, but there should also be other kinds of redress, um, which have to do, for example, with the decolonization of public space, because um, the injuries of enslavement are, of course, also reenacted daily as long as people who perpetrated it are honored uh, with street names, memorials, monuments, and the like, right? Um, and, you know, we, uh, we've had uh, a lot of talk about, you know, Germany being a model. I just want to um, bring in the fact that when the Black Lives Matter movement um, came to new prominence um, here in Germany, of course, we've been marching uh, in solidarity since 2015, right, with Ferguson and everything that happened. But, you know, um, there was, of course, an outpour of um, uh, solidarity and also linking it to German history in 2020. But when then uh, one of the Black organizations um, here in Germany, um, put up a map um, uh, that was called Tear This Down, where, which was a map of, you know, historical landmarks across the country where people who are invo were involved in uh, enslavement colonization are still commemorated positively. Um, the police raided their offices, saying that just putting up this map, um, you know, and then, you know, making allusions to what had happened in the UK, right, in, Brick uh, in um, uh, Bristol, right, um, that would already uh, amount to uh, invite people to commit crimes against public property, right? So this then also shows you some of the sensitivities uh, and the power also inversely, right? Uh, and the importance of this kind of public commemoration and the need to decolonize this 
at only, of course, as part of the broader movement, right, to um, draw attention to this, but also um, to empower um, people, descendants of that history to know about it, right? Um, um, and this then brings me to um, what I believe has been a key um, intervention in linking the history of commemorating the Holocaust and uh, in, in the context of decolonization, right, which was Michael Rothberg's um, multidirectional memory, right, remembering the Holocaust and age of decolonization, which has been published, I think, more than 10 years ago, right, um, in English. Um, so in this book, he makes the argument that some uh, of the key interventions that led to current Holocaust commemoration were made by French Jewish survivors of the Holocaust, and these early interventions were made in the context of the Algerian war. So the point is that people um, who had been silent up to that point about their own suffering as you know, uh, Jewish victims came out deliberately in the context of a colonial aggression because they saw um, some of the violence that had been visited unto them you know, um, also being meted out by the French colonial state in Algeria. And they felt moved to speak out and link very explicitly in their own public um, statements, link these histories, right? Uh, which then also speaks to the fact that um, resurfacing this history and speaking out from um, a standpoint of, of those harms, right, uh, is also always contextualized, right, in um, these other struggles, in this case, the Holocaust being uh, spoken about in the context of decolonization or an active colonial war, right? And so this again um, helps us to reframe, um, and this is the argument that Michael Rothbard makes, right? We should reframe this debate, moving away from an either or or a kind of uh, competition between memories, right? And recognize how they're interlinked and look for ways in which um, there can be a multidirectional way, right? Of um, commemorating this, um, linking these struggles in ways that are not, um, you know, competitive, right? Um, and I think this is of key importance today because um, with a heightened awareness uh, about colonial continuities, we find that many contemporary uh, inequalities that have, been, again, been heightened by the corona pandemic also have colonial roots. And that brings me, if you permit me, Alison, to link it to the Nubian case, right? I mean, um, I think uh, Vereen has spoken earlier about unequal vaccine access, right? Uh, and the blatant racism, even within Western societies in terms of the COVID response and the impacts and, you know, this is all well-documented. Um, but I think what is less often discussed are the ways in which colonial history and the present inequalities that result from it have also hampered vaccine access across the global south. And I want to use Namibia as a very telling and a very painful example. And the reason I'm bringing up Namibia here is because as a consequence of the genocide that happened, the first genocide of the 20th century, perpetrated by German colonial troops from the year of 1904, a genocide in which, or during which, the first officially so designated German concentration camps were erected which means that the first German concentration camps were not anywhere in Europe, but they were on the African continent. And the people um, who were tortured and exterminated in there were Africans, right? So this war um, was in the context of uh, settler colonial interests of Germany, right? It was about displacing people and taking their land. 
And the reason why I'm saying this now is because um, in the context of the corona pandemic, uh, we had this COVID facility. And of course, we can debate it. It has failed in many ways. The COVID facility was about um, you know, international efforts to pool money to be able to buy vaccines for nations who could not afford them. And while we can say it has broadly failed, it's still true that millions of doses have been distributed through the scheme, right? So it was still important in the little it achieved. And the reason why I'm uh, telling you about this now is because Namibia, which is one of the most unequal countries on the African continent and in the world, was not eligible um, to be part of this facility. Why? Because there is a pocket of, um, you know, uh, descendants, mostly of Germans and of some, you know, English and other white European settlers who are still occupying the vast majority of the land that has been taken in the context of the genocide. And what this uh, leads to is the gross inequality within Namibia that statistically moves Namibia above the threshold of a middle income country in ways that make it ineligible for the COVID facility. While in reality, um, it's a context of, you could say, economic apartheid or grossly racialized economic inequality, which means that the vast majority of the people who were deprived access to um, the vaccine were, um, you know, African Namibians, right? While, of course, um, European descendants, for the bigger part, were rich enough to, you know, ward themselves off the disease, which really ravaged Nigeria, uh, sorry, ravaged Namibia. And the tragedy of this is, looking at this from a German perspective, is that, of course, and I hope this becomes clear now, this is a direct echo, right, um, of the atrocity of um, the first genocide of the 20th century, which now uh, leaves its traces in uh, the context of the impact and the unequal and racialized impact of COVID um, in Namibia um, today, right? And so, um, these echoes are um, not just symbolic, not just theoretical. Um, they are a life and death matter today. And that is why it is so important that we, you know, link these histories together and understand the echo of that uh, violence uh, today. Also as a first step towards recognition and then um, hopefully reparations. Uh, Alison, if I may real quick. I wanted yeah. to I wanted to just add to something um Crazy had said, uh which is you know, Crazy and, and, and I and, and I'm I'm sure along with the other panelists, we all agree that how important the interconnections are. And we all agree how important the solidarity matters. In fact I don't actually believe anything can happen on any front for anyone unless we have solidarity. But I do think we need to reemphasize, even within the context of solidarity, we need to actually change the parameters of the debate in terms of how we define it. Because solidarity, for as long as I can, as long as I know, with regards to scholarship and history, and for as long as I've been alive, black folks on a global scale have always emphasized solidarity. But there is an anti-blackness that is not restricted to sort of a, a black and white binary, an anti-blackness that even runs deep within com black communities themselves, and especially other communities of color throughout the world, where even people who have never met a black person already know they don't like black people. Where am I getting to with this? It is 
it often falls on black people to emphasize solidarity. And even when we actually try to get the world at large to understand the exceptionalism of 15 million people displaced, which continually is having effects on the African continent in terms of human development, resource of human development, right? Um, there is a quick attack on black people that says you're exceptionalizing the black experience. Not exceptionalizing it with the context of what it means uniquely within the global history, but exceptionalizing as if black pain matters more than others, which is pathetic, it's just pathetic with regards to sort of the untruth of it and how within the black radical tradition, both scholars and activists have for a long time, you know, especially if you look at the, the tradition of the writings of the, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois and others, have really tried to make this a global solidarity movement. Um, and yet, there is a way in which I have noticed, whether it's the, in the most recent uprisings having to do with the post-George Floyd murder, or um, the, as we have been talking about the many sort of demonstrations and illustrations of how other pains always tend to sort of um, override the pain of folks of color more generally, but it's especially when it comes to black folks on a global African diaspora perspective, whenever one tries to emphasize the need to take into account um, the, what that means on, on a broader scale for everyone in terms of these interconnections that we're trying to make and the solidarity that is much needed, there is often a pushback, and sometimes that pushback is as strong among communities that were not part of the perpetrators, among non-white, non-European, North American communities. And that, too, ought to be talked about out loud because it is very pernicious and it does stand in the way of progress. I've noticed it all of a sudden, often the powers that see a good opportunity within this also do exploit it. Right. All of a sudden, you have this Olympics of, of oppression where black folks are not even concerned about that. We're more concerned about both, again, restoring, repairing, and restitution, not only for us because we understand that on a base scale, global anti-blackness and its interconnections with settler colonial dynamics as well as capitalism has such a widespread effects that it covers the globe more generally in terms of European imperialism and colonialism and racism. So we've always been making the point for solidarity and for the interconnections and the comparativeness, and not from a point of all struggles are similar or that some pains are higher than others. It's actually been always within a single sort of unitarian outlook of the humanitarian case for never repeating these crimes and for actually doing something about them. But again, um, whatever that push for solidarity comes from black people, I have to say there is often a reluctant, uh, a stubborn anti-blackness that is at the core of so many communities, not because they themselves developed it. In many ways, we know these are, this is coming up as part of the larger derivations of, of the revolutions of, of, of racism 
and how it is constructed. But the anti-blackness is real. And again, as I've said, even black people are not exempt from that anti-blackness, right? So I want to make sure that when we're talking about solidarity here, it's not a solidarity whereby blackness has to sort of uh, retreat and let others speak. Otherwise, we have to be afraid that somehow people are thinking that we're centralizing blackness, which I think in itself gives a larger perspective of the problem that often comes about when we talk about reparations. Why, why talk about black people so much? Why talk about slavery so much? But quick to have a global movement of sympathy whenever we call for solidarity with others and very much more recent abuses. Um, again, we have many examples of what that looks like. So I just want to, you know, Oh dear. Um, I, I, um, 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 both. Okay, we're back. The point, um, I, I, fro I froze here for a moment, but I'll just let it go. Yeah, no, I mean, and all this is such great points. I I can't believe that we have actually been doing this for 95 minutes. It seems like it has flown by, and I have about a billion things here that we could still talk about. So we're out of time, but um, if you have just a couple more minutes, normally I would be like, let's go. Um, I know some people are going to have to drop off, but since we're recording, I want to give a chance to get people to have their last word in. So if you have a couple minutes, we can just kind of, if, if you can indulge me for a minute. And, and if we can keep it brief, because I know people have to get on with their day. But um, just some final thoughts from, from each of you, and we'll, we'll move through, and I'll start with Doreen since she's had her hand up patiently. But what does progress look like for you? I mean, if you could sum it up, what, how would you measure progress um, moving forward? Because, you know, it, it's so many big issues have been brought up. Um, where do we go from here? So, Green, do you want to start? Thank you. Uh, I, I, I will try my best, but I, I really couldn't let this uh, um, e-conversation conclude without um, saying quickly. Marcus Garvey must be among those who try to unite us and have Pan-African solidarity. So let's not forget him. And then I was struck by the way in which you spoke about the vaccine imperialism or inequality, the way in which the same people who created the inequality, the impoverishment, now decide where countries fall on their scale. Um, and you know, the Caribbean countries have suffered from that as well. And then in, in terms of the Nama and Hero people, my conversation with them is that that German response was not framed within the language of reparation and uh, didn't, didn't really take into con consideration their own demands. Uh, and, and then the, the compensation paid, paid to the enslavers was not only in, in terms of the 20 million, which they didn't finish paying off until 2015, by the way, um, but in terms of the deliberate continuation through what was the scam called apprenticeship which was really negotiated to prolong slavery as part of, of the compensation. Where do we go from here? We have to try to, in, to insist that the, the, the arguments which are used by the opposing side don't overwhelm us. And I know that's one of the questions you wanted to, um, for us to look at. 
to, there are many reasons why they say they don't want to pay or they can't pay. We all know them and we must try to, um, you know, push back against that. Also, I think finally we have to understand that in, in the case of the British, they knew all along that they owed the CARICOM region because in, in 1939, one of their politicians said, we carry a grave responsibility for a colonial policy based on cheap labor and cheap raw materials. The facts are out and we can no longer plead ignorance and indifference. Of course, there has been officially responsibility and the dominance of narrow calculating colonial interests. We can point to years of criminal neglect when official ineptitude and sloth permitted affairs to drift. So they knew all along. And so our demand is not being taken seriously. But in the 1940s and so on, when Caribbean governments went to negotiate independence and with reparation, they were denied, even though there was something called the Colombo Plan, which gave Asian people under the British Empire reparation but not to the, the Caribbean. But as a former um, Trinidad and Tobago Governor General said, and I close with this, an administering power is not entitled to extract for centuries all that can be got out of a colony. And when that has been done to relieve itself of its obligations, justice requires that reparation be made to the country that has suffered the ravages of colonialism. Our duty as activists and educators is to increase education around the justification so that we can have resolution. Thank you so much for giving me the floor. Thank you. Um, we're going to collect a ton of resources and put them together because you, you point out some things that we just didn't get to that need to be a part of this conversation. Um, maybe we'll have a second part soon. Um, but uh, Wes, what's your final, what, how do you measure progress? What are your final thoughts on there? Mm. Yes, thank you for the question. Um, I, I think I would like to, um, you know, start with that from where I, I last ended, which is um, I very much want to uphold this, um, the, the point of, um, the point of, one second, please. Could well, we what, get some? Yes. Claire, how about you? Could you jump in? Do you mind? Sure. Um, so... I mean, I'm a white person, so I don't really get to say what progress is, right? Like, I don't get to set the metrics here. Um, I think, you know, um, my job is to listen and learn and um, help my students to do that too. And, you know, talk to friends and family. And I think for the, the you know, the people listening to the talk today, hopefully you've learned things that, if you're white, clarify why this is such an important issue and why we should care and why we need to contribute to the solidarity. And um, yeah, I have a couple of book recs that I think are helpful. Um, there's a book by John Tajishi. I might be mispronouncing his name. Um, it's about, it's called Redress. And he was one of the leaders of the Japanese American movement for reparations for the um, World War II internment camps. And so that's, if you're interested in learning about how the, how reparations happen. Um, it's a very long process oftentimes, um, but I think it's an encouraging story in that um, 
it was extremely unlikely that they were going to get reparations, and then they did. Um, and, and it documents how they made that happen. Um, and then William Darity, who is at Duke University, and his wife, um, Kristen Mullen, uh, have written a book called From Here to Equality. And it is, um, there's been a lot of discussion in this about documentation. And so they lay out kind of the documentation and the economic case for um, the harm that has compounded over centuries and what that might look like if you were to make economic reparations for that today uh, in America specifically, but you can extrapolate to other contexts. Um, so yeah, I, I just think um, those are those are useful books to read. Great. Thank you very much. Wes, you were interrupted. Yes, I'm, I'm sorry about that. Um, so yeah, I, I wanted to say, um, you know, just to uh, re uh, repeat the point about, I do think the way forward um, is to actually put this within a context of solidarity. Um, but when I repeat my point that solidarity will actually be undermined if anti-blackness re remains a central component of how the world looks at um, this history. Um, and second of all, I think for me, progress looks like um, progress is not progress until we've had all the elements that I uh, outlined earlier, you know, reparative, restorative, and, and redistributive. Um, and I might add that redistributive, from my perspective, also includes um, taking from current elites, contemporary elites like um, Prime Minister Cameron, who actually received payments um, that were paid to slaveholders as recently as 2014, which is when I think the last documented payments by the British were made to former slaveholders. And we've had more instances and examples including the United States, paying reparations to the perpetrators than to the people who the crimes were perpetrated against. So in some ways, not only do I want the reparations, uh, the restoration and um, the uh, you know, re uh, redistribution, I think some of that redistribution should be taken back from those people if we can both document the state and and those who had received, because I do not believe perpetrators should get anything for what they inflicted on others. Um, so for me, that is actually a new component that I'm adding to 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 the formula. And and um, and lastly, for, uh, from a national perspective, uh, I think the case of Haiti is very very symbolic, incredibly symbolic, especially for um, the, the black diaspora. So until Haiti is actually, has actually gotten its payment relative to the very specific history of that indemnity that France imposed in 1825, which by the way, the United States, Germany, England, and France all benefited from, uh, until that is paid, um, I don't see uh, uh, progress. And, in the context of the African-American population, in less than a decade, or um, no, actually in about a decade, the black population here in the United States is projected to have zero wealth in a country whose um, GDP is over $20 trillion, right? Um, and for me, I want to see, um, and, and that too is it has its own 
very global symbolism given the centrality of the United States and carrying on where the British and others left off. Um, and, and internally, if we don't see that kind of progress with the black community, the black American community here, I think we will, it, the case will be harder to make on, on a broader scale. So for me, this is what in part, um, uh, uh, you know, progress looks like. And in terms of bringing the cases uh, to the public arena, it seems to me the current institutions, global institutions that we have established in the post-World War II era have not been sufficient to protect the claims that we're making here. So therefore, one thing that I have been advocating for is taking it to the court of the perpetrators themselves, right? The United States is currently not part of many of the legal institutions that were established precisely because they don't want to be party to some of these um, uh, legal issues. So if you don't want to take it at the international level, I argue that CARICOM along with you know, various other um, people of African descent and indigenous people come together and level those, uh, those um, legal issues um, on the national arena because as far as I'm concerned, the national arena still remains the most sort of um, uh, point of efficacy to get certain crimes to be recognized. Um, and lastly, there is also a role here for the newly independent African states, which I have to say have been disappointingly absent in terms of their voices, not, not scholars, not civil societies, I'm talking about the states, the African states, um, where many of our descendants in terms of uh, people of African descent were taken. I want to see more of their voice on the international arena putting pressure on the European powers to make this a global conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you get the final word for now, although there's so much more to say, but please. Yes, thank you. Um, yeah, I just have to agree with and underline everything that my colleagues have just um, said. There were key points. Um, for me, um, progress is also about um, shrinking the space and opportunity for denial and impunity. I think um, we are experiencing, unfortunately, a debate that is also quite ritualized. Um, and I think um, we have to recognize um, the rituals in this debate and just, you know, shrink the opportunity space for denial. And um, I think in that context, um, what happened in Namibia, and I think Green was very right to point out uh, the gross, um, you know, the questionable conduct of the German government, right, in this so-called settlement. I think that is a cautionary tale that is worth looking at. So I just want to emphasize the fact that, um, you know, this so-called settlement um, is uh, not just disappointing, but as a German citizen, I have to say it's actually shameful. As a member of the African diaspora, I have to say it is, um, yeah, um, grossly inadequate. And looking at the process that led there, I have to point out the fact that, um, you know, the um, affected communities were not part of these negotiations. So we hear about the year-long negotiations. Yes, that might have been so. But last year, I had the privilege of um, hosting a virtual panel um, with um, members of the Oba Herero and um, mm -hmm. Oba Bandero Genocide Foundation. 
and also members of the NAMA Genocide Technical Committee. These are two organizations representing Herero and NAMA communities who mm -hmm. were, uh, you know, um, harmed during this genocide. Um, and they have very, very clearly said that this whole process was unacceptable because they were not at the table, right? So their motto is nothing about us without us. And I think it is important um, for the global African diaspora to take up such specific cases and apply pressure to their own national governments to join the chorus of international, um, you know, African, global African civil society to point to these um, injustices and the questionable frameworks that are being presented to us as, you know, being steps towards uh, reparation. And in this particular case, I find it particularly insidious because, you know, we've talked about the German government and its long tradition of public commemoration and, you know, reparations for some groups. And now this, um, the telling aspect of this Namibian case is that they're using all this uh, language, you know, decades of tradition and language um, that has been has been developed in the context of the um, you know the commemoration of the Holocaust is now being mobilized, right? So the, the former German foreign minister said things such as there can never be a final line. You know we always have to keep remembering we have a collective responsibility. All this language has been mobilized, but then if you look at the actual terms, none of this is actually happening. You know the the, the sum is ridiculously small. The terms are punishing and are further restricting, um, you know, uh, even Namibian government sovereignty, let alone, uh, again, leaving out the actual afflicted communities, right? And they contain something that I feel is, um, should be completely off limits, uh, which is important in this debate, which is the mixing of so-called development assistance and reparations, right? And I think that is something that is key uh, for many global southern and also CARICOM uh, contexts, right, where Western governments would then say, oh, yes, yes, you know, there's a problem here, but, you know, and then they come with their long list of so-called development assistance that they have rendered over decades and try to deduct it, you know, um, and bring it into the reparations debate. That's a categorically different thing uh, for many reasons that I can't go into now. I just want to mention one. Development assistance um, has conditions attached, and this is a very, very simple you know, basic aspect of justice, if you have done a wrong and you have to pay for it, you cannot determine what should happen with that money. And that alone means that no so-called development assistance can ever be, you know, um, brought into um, this conversation, right? Uh, so I believe it's important to um, apply pressure and to hit these neurologic points and to point to these internal contradictions in the uh, Western European discourse and practice towards moving, um, you know, towards symbolic reparations or rather mislabeling what they're doing as reparations. And I want to conclude by uh, pointing to something that I believe also has to be part of this conversation, um, which is the aspect of um, the climate crisis. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because the current climate crisis, which is really a fundamental threat to human civilization on this planet right now, um, would not have been possible without the ravages of enslavement and colonization that put Europe in the position, uh, you know, to engage in onto this uh, carbon-intensive pillaging, uh, life-denying path of so-called development, right? And the reason I'm bringing this up is not only because there are these historical linkages and because, you know, um, ecocide is also genocide today for many 
indigenous and African and African diasporic peoples, but also because there is a case to be made for the um, impunity of the West, both in terms of enslavement and in terms of you know, the ravages of unsustainable lifestyle over centuries that have been engendered by this. And so there's this dual impunity that I believe we have to link and address jointly because it is linked historically, because it is linked in the present, and because it has um, structurally violent and anti-Black effects that indigenous and African communities the world over are facing in disproportionate ways. And that is why I believe um, looking at these jointly and linking them um, in a strategic way uh, would be one step in the direction of progress. Thank you very much. Um, you, you all bring up such amazing points. Um, I've already said that there's so much more we could talk about and, and the opportunity just was opened yet again in linking to climate change. Um, but I, I, I have to end it. I think it's a testament to all of you that we have held on to our audience this long past when we told them it would be I mean, it, it's been a very interesting conversation. As Claire said, you know, I hope that people who were listening um, were, were, were listening, were learning something. If they, were, if they didn't learn anything from this, they certainly weren't paying attention because so much came up. I feel like I learned a lot. Um, thank you all for um, participating. Thank you for sharing your experiences and your perspectives and your expertise and um, especially your time and for going beyond what I asked you to do with the 90 minutes. Um, this was very valuable. It was an important conversation to have and I thank you all for participating in it.